Mac Jones is ripped. Matt Patricia is calling plays. The Celtics are title favorites. And The Ringer has a new Boston show. I'm Brian Barrett, host of Off the Pike, the show covering all things Boston sports. I'll have shows multiple times a week covering your favorite teams and with your favorite Ringer and local guests. Plus, maybe Bill will stop by to rant about the Sox. Follow Off the Pike with me, Brian Barrett, now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. So I have an uncle who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His name is Carl. He's one of my favorite people on planet Earth, and he is a huge Los Angeles Dodgers fan. During the summer, I get texts from Uncle Carl. They go like this. Hey, Curto, did you see that Dustin May has a no-hitter through five? When I get those texts, I pop in my earbuds, I open my Sirius app, and I smile. Because this moment of uncle-nephew bonding is going to be narrated by Charlie Steiner, the Dodgers play-by-play announcer. Here's a fact I hadn't really processed until this week. Charlie Steiner's career calling Dodgers games is now longer than his career hosting SportsCenter at ESPN. And this isn't Steiner's second career in the business. It's more like his third or his fourth. So this week, Steiner and I sat in his dining room in Los Angeles, and we worked backwards. We talked about sharing a press box with the late Vin Scully, about how Steiner got hired by George Steinbrenner to call Yankees games, about how a Connecticut liquor store owner, of all people, helped Steiner get on at ESPN, and about the time Steiner and a British reporter got into a scuffle at Wimbledon. Consider this a command from my Uncle Carl. Pop in your earbuds. Here's Charlie Steiner. All right, Charlie, you've been calling baseball full-time for 20 years, which is a longer period than you spent doing SportsCenter. I've been with the Dodgers now 18 years. Uh, I was at ESPN for 14 years and three years with the Yankees. So I'm now actually longer in L.A. with the Dodgers than I was at ESPN and the Yankees combined, which upon reflection is at once... Neat and frightening. <laughs> what do you like about calling a baseball game versus doing Sports Center, a studio show? I grew up a baseball fan. Uh, the first time I heard a Brooklyn Dodger game, I was five or six years old. And I was attracted like so many millions of fans um, to the voice of Vin Scully. So I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And by the time I was seven, 
I was calling Brooklyn Dodger games in my basement to an audience of two, my mom and my dad, and they had their forefingers inside their respective ears. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I, I, I was immediately drawn to it. And the crazy thing about the journey is 65 years later, I'm calling the World Series for the Los Angeles Dodgers from my living room. And at the moment that the Dodgers won it, I had this enormous flashback as a child, fast forward 65 years later. Um, and that was, if there's an aha moment, that was it. So baseball was always my childhood dream, aspiration, love. And so when I'm calling a game now in those kinds of moments, I can go back to those thrilling days of yesteryear and, and just become a kid again. 2002, you were offered jobs with both the Yankees and the Giants. Is that correct? Yes. Um, at the end of 2001, I had been doing ESPN radio and then... I was, so I was doing all the big games in August up until September 11th, um, and then September 11th happened. Uh, immediately after we went back to play again on September the 17th, um, I did the first game back, the Phillies and the Braves. The next few days, I did the Mets game back when Piazza hit the home run the following week I was doing the Yankees field reporting from the Yankee game, their first game back. And then after that, I was calling Barry Bonds final 13 games, home run 68 through 73. So I was all over the place. Uh, prior to uh, 9-11, I was at Yankee Stadium sitting in Brian Cashman's office. It was a Sunday night game. It was three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and we're just chatting. And George walks in to the office. And I'd known George from the time I worked in Cleveland back in uh, the late, mid to late 70s. And George was saying, oh, I, I heard you on television the other day, and we're you know, just chatting aimlessly. And he says to Cashman, I need to talk to you. And Okay, so I said, it's time for me to leave. Um, so George leaves the office, and I say to Brian, because 2002 would be the first year for the Yes Network, I say, you know, if something is available with this new, they didn't even have, have a name yet, with this new network, you know, I, I could be interested. All right. So an hour or so goes by. I come back my uh, the broadcast booth and cashman walks in and he said i've got good news and bad news okay what i wasn't expecting any uh, the bad news is i told george you might be interested in coming to work for the yankees um and he told me to stay the fuck out of his business build me a winner he, you have nothing to do with broadcasting the good news was he said he wants to hire you. <laughs> and so that was how it came to pass. All the while, 
uh, I'm doing those games up to and post 9-11 and the Bonds home runs. The Giants uh, call and say, would you be interested in coming out and working with John Miller? Wow, cool. My father was in ill health at the time, and I'm having grown up in New York, and the offers were identical. Um, truth be told, I was always a Dodger fan. And so I decide to go to work for the Yankees so my dad could hear me in his last few years, which he did. And that was how the, the, the Yankee part of the story came about. Um, I suspect if my dad was not in ill health, I might well have gone to the Giants and worked with John for 20 years, which would have been very cool too. What was that experience like for your dad? Oh, it was wonderful. Um, you know, he had to put up with my nonsense in the basement with the TV sound down. It was an old black and white TV. And that was very cool. And then uh, when uh, I came out here, my mom at that point was in her 90s. She was able to, the last couple of years of her life, she could hear me uh, do what I was doing in, in their basement all those years ago. Um, so I've had a, an incredibly serendipitous journey every step of the way. Start with the Yankees, 2002. 2003, you call Aaron Boone's home run that wins the ALCS. His first at-bat of the game. There's a fly ball deep to left. It's on its way. There it goes. And the Yankees are going to the World Series. Aaron Boone has hit a home run. The Yankees go to the World Series for the 39th time in their remarkable history. What do you remember about that call? I remember... There, there are so many things about that call, and I guess that's the one of all that I've thankfully had some part of, the one I suspect that I remember best and probably has this, the strongest legs. The Yankees and the Red Sox were a great rivalry, goes without saying. This was the 26th game of the season that came down to the final pitch of the year uh, in the last half of the 11th inning. Um, and John Sterling and I, he was the guy. He was the voice. I was the new guy. And I don't know, I did three or four innings during a regular game, and he would do the last three. And then when it came to extra innings, he would do the 10th, I would do the 11th, he would do the 12th, and so on and before there was a, you know, a zombie runner at second base. So it's a tie score. It is an absolutely thrilling game between two of the great rivals at that time, one of the greatest rivalries in the game. And now it's the bottom of the 11th. And in the postseason, they always add, I think, another 30 seconds of commercial time between innings. The local radio station, WCBS, opted to add like 45 seconds. So now I'm looking at my watch. I'm looking at uh, Aaron Boone in the on-deck circle. We're still in commercial. And I'm thinking two words, Heidi Bowl. <laughs> so now John comes out of the commercial break, and then he says whatever, the, what he, whatever he said. And I had no time. Zero time to set it up. 
And I think I said, first pitch, 11th inning, and then, and then the call. Um, and I knew, I mean, the crowd went crazy. It was an instant. It was, it was like, it was like turning on your radio full blast and you didn't expect it to be full blast. And the crowd is just going crazy. And I'm in the middle of this call. And I remember Boone going from second to third and I uh, screaming out, Aaron Boone. And then he crosses the plate and I finish up the call, whatever it was. And I knew I got it pretty good. Um, because in those moments, you really don't want to fuck it up. And, and underneath the, uh, the desk in the booth, I just kind of clenched my fist and said to myself, yeah, I didn't fuck it up. And, and just the, the hysteria of the moment at Yankee Stadium and just the moment itself was one of those I suspect that I'll always remember fondly. You called this my Yankee tattoo. I guess it was. Um, what's fascinating is to this day, I gather they play that call pretty much before every single game at Yankee Stadium. Um, you know, you, you some in, in our business, you're just there in the moment. It's Zelig, it's Gump, and you're there, and and hopefully, you know, you you leave a mark and I suppose in that case, it was somewhat of a tattoo. Um, but just from a technical point of view, I said and did everything I would have hoped for and could have hoped for based on my experience leading up to that moment. And I crossed the finish line standing up. I was thinking about that because we've been talking about the Yankees announcers and Cardinals announcers being present to call these big home runs this year, as opposed to the game being on Apple or some other outlet. Is that how announcers think about big plays, that the lottery is going to hit and you're going to be there, it's going to be your inning, it's going to be your game? No, you're just there. It's just happenstance. It just happens to happen. Um, whatever call or moment I've been involved with, I had no control over being there when that moment took place. And so, again, having been around ESPN all those years and in New York with uh, the Jets and God save me, the generals um, and, 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 and the Yankees and the Dodgers, I've been around a lot of big games and big moments. Luck, happenstance, circumstance. And so, no, you, you go in and you're going to call what you see and hopefully you come up with something that, that sticks. You mentioned John Sterling, the guy and new guy. Mm -hmm. How did you two get along? It was interesting. You know, again, John had always been the guy. And I say this now, we're what 18 years removed and, and we have a very nice, cordial relationship and friendship we talk three four times a season when i got there i you know i was the new guy who was hired by george um and i was going to work alongside him um he had had michael k as his partner who basically he trained as a broadcaster 
and uh, worked with several others before I showed up. And so I was a different breed from what John had worked with. I wasn't, you know, some kid from Columbus who had just shown up one day. So I think there was, and, and we were two play-by-play guys and not play-by-play uh, former player. That took a while. I think it was unfairly reported that we didn't get along. What, from my perspective, we just came from different places who just happened to arrive at that place for that period of time. Um, and it took a while. Um, and I, I, the hardest part was that people were writing and assuming stuff that wasn't quite true. And that is really, how, how do you then go and tell folks, hey, what you're writing really isn't true without getting into a controversy? And that's the last thing in the world I want to do. So I just kind of let it roll. And, you know, we had three years. And then in the, uh, when my contract was up, I, it was not going to work that way for a long period of time. Uh, the Yankees wanted me to stay and offered me an enormous sum of money to do their, their studio show, the pregame and postgame, which I didn't want to do. I had done all that prior to the Yankees. And happenstance, circumstance, I get a call from the Dodgers. Um, would you be interested in, uh, we're going to make a move out here. Uh, we're going to replace Ross Porter. Would you be interested in coming out here? Having been a fan of the Dodgers since I was five, I really hurt my negotiating posture when my first words were, fucking A, Bubba. <laughs> and uh, within a, f a few weeks, uh, we, we had made, made a deal. And again, this was, now I was the first new guy from a court, which, you know, the good news was, hey, I'm going to be part of this new era of the Dodgers. The bad news was I kind of became a spokesman for the Gaddafi family a little <laughs> <laughs> more sooner than I had expected. But, I, you know, again, here we are 18 years later, and it's uh, where I always wanted to be, and uh, here I am. You had a quote after moving to L.A. I want to feel joy again, that it's okay to laugh. There's no better theater in baseball than Yankee Stadium for the drama, for the history, but it's a hard place to work. Yes, I, 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 it is. It, I don't know what it is now. It certainly was then. But it was also where I grew up. So I was sufficiently hardened to that kind of nonsense. Uh, that it never overwhelmed me, but that was just the price of doing business with the Yankees for George and all of that that entails. Um, and, you know, there's such a different vibe between New York, where I grew up, and Los Angeles, where I now live, that, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was a lifestyle uh, difference. It was a whole vibe that was different. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, again, competing uh, with John to some degree for time, just mood, Yankees, nuts, crazy, Bronx, coming to L.A. 
where it was nice and mellow and fun. And, and I've been blessed to work with uh, Rick Monday for 18 years. And in our business, if you've got a partner for that long, um, you're very fortunate and I'm very lucky. Listening to baseball on the radio feels very personal. How do you convince a fan base to let you be their voice? Time. It just takes time. What I don't consider myself, if I look at what I do and have done in my career, I don't look at myself as necessarily a play-by-play announcer. I mean, I began my career playing tunes. I was playing classic rock when it was new and not classic rock. Um, I was doing news. I was news director at four radio stations. Two of the four were all news. Um, I did television. Reluctantly, I've always been a radio guy, not TV. So whatever it is that I bring to the booth every day, it's not specifically with a baseball background, but this is an assignment that I have had now for 20 something years and four with, uh, ESPN. And when I covered boxing, that was my assignment. Then I covered that as my story. Um, and so I'm in their ears in their cars, night in night out. Um, and I guess my my desire and goal is to be that comfortable pair of brown shoes when you get home at the end of the day and not anything stylish or flashy, but show up every day, try to report the story as accurately, concisely, and uh, as uniquely as I can, because all of us are different personalities who are calling games. And you hope that over a period of time you are um, embraced and received in, in that car and in that home and in that kitchen where the game may be heard. All right. So concise, like a pair of comfortable shoes. How else do you want to sound when you're doing a game on the radio? Like I know what I'm talking about. Um, that's really important. That's, that's credibility. You have to have credibility. Um, what else? Vin always tells the story about one of his first big conversations with Red. Now, here's, here's, I'm talking to you now, matter of factly, about Red and Vin, who happened to be Red Barber and Vin Scully. And I'm part of this lineage, and it, I have to pinch myself every day. And Red said to Vin in his first year, he said, Young man, you have something that nobody else has and Vin's thinking oh I can't wait to hear this and Red says you you are you that's all you can be you can't be me you can't be anybody else you have to be yourself and that is such a valuable lesson um for all broadcasters I can't be the next this or the next that I can only be the best broadcaster i can be based on the experience that i've had and lord knows it's been a while now 2020 dodgers win the world series you get to make that call curious to adamas call strike three the dodgers win finally the wait 
is over. The Dodgers are the champions of 2020 in a year like no other where joy has been so hard to come by. Tonight, tears of joy. Let them flow. What do you remember about that moment? You and I are talking in my dining room. Ten feet from here is where I called the game. Um, again, I, when I was a child, it's all I ever wanted to be. Um, I'd turn the sound down. I'd call the games and so on, and nobody heard. Now, here I am, because of the pandemic, having called all the games from my living room, which was alternate parts, cool, bizarre, weird, sentimental. But it was, that was what we had to do in, in 2020. So now we're getting to the point where the Dodgers can actually clinch. And again, I'm having these childhood flashbacks. And Urias with the strikeout. And I said, finally, the wait is over. The Dodgers are the champions of 2020. And I talked about joy, um, which to me is what all of this stuff should be about. Um, and I said something about how there was so little joy this year but for this in this moment we can share the joy and i'm i'm there in a pair of sweats and a t-shirt with a headset mic on in my in my living room media room whatever you call it and i'm actually calling the dodgers world series championship which was beyond a pipe dream 65 years earlier and there it was it was it was the goddamnedest thing and and in its way it's every bit as memorable perhaps even more so than than the boone home run just because of circumstance did i know that i would someday become the dodger announcer did i know uh there would be covid did i know that we were capable of actually doing a game from home with all the technical wizardry that they had no but there it was it was in that moment and lord knows you hope you don't stumble over all all over yourself too badly aaron boone summer was a lightning strike but with the dodgers you had time to think about what you might say did you think about that in advance you know <laughs> I, I, I called Vin that morning. I, I, we spoke a lot. I mean, he, he meant a lot to me. So on the morning of the clinch, I said, I, Vin, I, I'm a hummer, 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 hummer. And I said, I think I have an idea. Yeah, what's that? I said, how about in a year that's been so improbable? And he said, I believe it's been <laughs> taken. <laughs> For those who don't know, 1988 World Series. Yeah, to, to Game me, the one. single greatest sports call of all time, the uh, uh, the Kirk Gibson home run. So the, I kept thinking all day about the word joy, and it's fascinating you brought it up about the Yankees in, uh, what, 20 years ago. And it was such a joyless exercise for all of us in 2020. You, know, you had the dopey cardboard cutouts which were 
creepy then and even creepier in retrospect. And I'm in my living room with stats and all this stuff all over the place. And it's over. And I'm there. I'm I'm that at that point, I guess a 70-year-old guy calling the World Series, not beside age, not significantly different in emotion from the five, six, seven-year-old kid that was calling Brooklyn Dodger games. So it was just a wonderful uh, confluence of emotions, of, of life's experience. Um, oh, that that's another one. You know, I, who calls the goddamn World Series from their living room? <laughs> no one no until one. 2020. You know, that was, so yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, 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 that's one of those that just happened. Speaking of Vinny, mm -hmm. you move out here in 2005, and for a time, the first three innings of the radio yeah. call were his television sure. call on the radio. Mm -hmm. And then you came in in the fourth inning? Right. What was that like as an announcer? It was unique. Well, look, A, it was Vin. So, you know, if Vin wanted to do the first eight, fine. Or if he wanted to do the last eight, fine. Um, Vin was, was the reason I wanted to do what I do and what I wanted to be when I grew up. So let's begin with that. Um, I like hundreds of millions of people uh, vin you know with the death of the queen it, was, it, it reminded me about vin he was in everybody's life the way the queen was in everybody's life uh and so when when i came out here um that was those were the rules fine what am i gonna say no um but it was actually more difficult than than I think folks might imagine. Because you're picking up a race um, a third of the way through, and you've got to kind of reestablish what you're seeing without, you know, restating what they had just heard from the master. Um, and so Mo, Rick Monday, and I, we, we just kind of sit there and wait, and then it was our turn. Um, and it was it was difficult, but again, you figure out a way to make it work as best as you can. When was the last time you talked to Vin? I talked to Vin um, the day of the Sandy Koufax statue unveiling. I was asked to do that, and that was clearly a place where Vin would like to have been, should have been, could have been. And so I, I called him a few days earlier and told him as much. I said, I feel honored. I feel saddened. I feel I have all these emotions that I wish you were there and able to do it. And he said, no, 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 no. My, my time's up. It, it, it's yours. Just go be good. And he was really a father figure to me. So we do the Koufax statue ceremony and uh mark walter sandy uh joe tory clayton kershaw and i was the the mc and you know you're uh, 
when you're doing something like that, you just don't want to step on the moment. And so I was, it was very important for me to really get it done and get it done right, which, and it turned out very nicely. So I'm driving home and Vin calls and we have this lovely chat. And in all the years we were together, um, he never critiqued my work and I never, well, I'm going to critique his, you know, we just didn't go there. Um, and it was real. And, and understand we had dinner. Then a fellow named Billy Delury, who came out with the Dodgers in 58, Rick Monday and I, the four of us had lunch or dinner before every home game and several on the road for 14 years. So do the math. I mean, it was over a thousand dinners. So we were close, but we never talked about specifics of, hey, this call or that call. And so he calls me and he said, I, I just watched the, the Kofax ceremony and he could not have been nicer, uh, more complimentary. And it, it, it was, it was lovely. And, uh, that was the last conversation that I had with Vin and I guess he passed away, you know, a month or two later, I guess a month later, whatever it was, it was relatively short period of time. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Couple questions about your background. Growing up on Long Island, 
you went to high school and the big basketball player at the rival high school was Dr. J. Julius, Julius Irving. Irving. Julius Irving played at Roosevelt. And I, I raised this question of high school alumni. Who's the biggest? Julius Irving, Eddie Murphy, or Howard Stern? Ooh. They all went to Roosevelt High School. Um, Julius was by class, 67. Um, Eddie Murphy, I think, was a few years later. Um, so that, that that's one of those, I suppose it depends on your age um, and, and, and interest. Uh, yeah, he, he played at Roosevelt. Um, I actually played on the same court as Julius in the summer in uh, high school. Um, we had a kid named Jeff Halliburton who actually was a better player in high school than Julius was. And he went on, went on to Drake and played for the hideous 76ers. But, but Julius was, he was the ugly duckling. He could do these things and then he kicked the ball out of bounds and stuff. So we played, you know, half court. And he ended up at UMass because, you know, he wasn't that great yet. But yeah, Julius Irving, uh, Roosevelt High School, 67. And I went to Malvern High School, class of 67. You mentioned spinning records. Mm -hmm. I read that in college you had a radio show called the Flower Power oh, Hour. Oh, Jesus, yes. Can you give us a sense of what DJ Charlie was like on the Flower Power Hour? I was so cool. Um, I, the moment I graduated high school within a day or two, I, I, I took off for San Francisco. Hey, Ashbury. I mean, I was just a hippie and I suppose to this day I am. Um, and so I was always into music and I was always into the radio. Um, and in those days when you played albums, you know, that was FM underground and uh, the flower power hour sounds embarrassingly dopey now, but it was actually kind of cool then. And so, yeah, I, I, I played all the songs that weren't top 40 and, uh, and that's what the flower power hour was all about. Were you doing a voice or were you just, using this your, is me. Yeah. You, know, you weren't, you weren't given a nice husky no, tone. I didn't. This is it. You know, this is, yeah, I got a voice and thankfully it was from my dad and not my mom. <laughs> but I no, I, it was not FM. No, it wasn't. No. no. I always wanted to ask you about this. July 1981, Wimbledon. Uh, John McEnroe has just won a match, mm -hmm. I believe over Rod Frawley. Yep. And afterward in the interview room, there was what Newsday called a scuffle between a British reporter and an American radio sportscaster. Charlie, the radio sportscaster was you. I was not the British reporter. No. What happened? Again, I, I've had this in Gumpian, Zelig-like experience. So it's 81. It's Borg and McEnroe. Yeah, Borg and McEnroe, I think they faced only each other only nine times, but they were always spectacular moments and there were such disparate personalities and in that year um McEnroe was uh, having a relationship with a female player Stacy Margolin and they were in the process of breaking up now this is back page news uh, for the tabloids they had a field day with it and of course McEnroe fed the beast with his his temper and 
and his spectacular play. And so after each match, a uh, reporter named uh, Jules Whitaker, who was either James Whitaker or Jules Whitaker, would constantly be asking the question after the match, Mr. McEnroe, is it true that you and Stacey Margolin are Splitsville? Splitsville? McEnroe, first day, said, look, I'm going to talk about tennis. I'm not going to talk about my personal life. Next match, there he is. There's the question. McEnroe is getting steamed. Next match, next match. Now, they go to the semifinals. He, he beats Frawley. And with each passing day, this little tiny press room became a spam can that was just overrun with reporters. And McEnroe, after Mr. McEnroe, gets up and launches every F-bomb you could hear. And he leaves. Now, this little press room is going crazy. And I, who was next to a, a, a reporter from Life magazine, which gives you some idea how long ago it was, she and I went over to this guy, Whitaker, and said, come on, man, you're, you're screwing it up for everybody else. We just want to get our quotes like you. And then this other British reporter named Nigel Clark, God bless him, and we turned out to be friends years later, comes over to me and said, it's none of your business and starts pointing his index finger in my face. I said, get your fucking finger out of my face. And then it's now beginning to heat up. He steps up on a chair and dives on me as if I'm the swimming pool and he's Greg Luganus. And I'm thinking, I haven't been in a fight since junior high school. And there it was, and, and, and there was one camera that wasn't even supposed to be in that room that picked it up, and I just saw the other day the uh, McEnroe documentary, and there I was again. I can't go away from that. But it was just one of those crazy moments that I was there, and it, it had nothing to do with patriotism. It was just some reporters telling other reporters, come on, let's see if we can... Can't we get together? Didn't work out quite so well. And how'd the fight come out? Um, unanimous decision. For your Come on, man. <laughs> I assumed, but I, I got to make sure, Charlie. Yeah. You mentioned the generals. This would be the New York, New Jersey generals of the USFL. They were the New Jersey generals. The owner considered them the New York, New Jersey generals. <laughs> the owner being for the uninitiated? Donald Trump. What is your abiding memory of being the announcer of Donald Trump's USFL team. I was with the team longer than he was. What a shock. Um, he bought the team after one year. Um, he was, at that time, uh, the tabloids considered him the boy builder. Um, he wanted a football team so he could get the back page of the Post and the Daily News, Newsday, because he often had space on page six, the gossip, and got some notoriety with real estate. But if he had football and he had page six, and then occasionally he'd get the front page, I mean, he it, for him it was the trifecta. So the whole thing about him owning the football team was all about him. It was then what I saw when he took over the team in 84, but I had first met him a couple of years earlier. Um, what you see now, he, he was just in a Petri dish then, becoming 
the human being that he has become. Um, he wasn't a pleasant character. Um, he would often tell folks years later that uh, he made my career and he had nothing to do with my career. He, we gave him work when he didn't have any. I was already there. You know, I, I was, I, I don't need to go through what I was doing at the time above and beyond the generals. But it was, it, it, he, he lied with the greatest of ease then as he does now. Um, so yeah, I saw young Donald metastasize into old Donald. Fast forward a couple of years, 1988, you are hired by ESPN. Mm -hmm. Thanks in part to a Norwalk, Connecticut liquor store owner named Larry. Larry the liquor guy. So Donald Trump didn't help your career, but how did Larry? Larry help? had much more impact on my career than Donald Trump did. I had moved after uh, the generals disappeared. The competing radio station, WABC, uh, called and asked, would I be interested in doing the Jets? Well, sure. So I go and do the Jets for a couple of years. And in the third year, uh, new management had come in. Uh, they, the Yankee announcers at the time were Hank Greenwald and Tommy Hutton. They were fired. John Sterling came in in 88. So they had lost the football contract. And I was also doing the morning drive radio program beside the, the Jets. And it was my turn to face the executioner. Never had it happen before, but okay. And I had nine months left on my contract, so it was fine. So it got a fair amount of attention in the papers that I was uh, jettisoned. Uh, ooh, J-E-T-S, Jess, Jess, Jess. Um, and... That was on a Friday, and or it was on a Thursday. It was reported on Friday. And Steve Bornstein, then the president of ESPN, they were in the process of trying to um, restart SportsCenter. And they brought in John Walsh to me, one of the great broadcasting editorial geniuses. And his job was to give SportsCenter something new. And so Bornstein goes into this liquor store. A liquor store in Norwalk, Connecticut. Larry, Larry the liquor guy. And he says to, knowing Steve had something to do with that cable station up in Bristol, said, My favorite sportscaster got fired, and I don't know why. And it's crazy. And, and Steve said, What's his name? Gives him my name. And Bornstein, being a TV guy in Connecticut, I'm a radio guy in New York. He didn't know me from Adam. So on Monday, he goes to, the recently hired John Walsh. You know this Steiner guy? I said, well, yeah. I, and I had known John when he was doing Inside Sports, and I was uh, at RKO Radio. And Anyway, we had, we had a history. So, and he tells the story about Larry the liquor guy. Let's see if we can track him down. Knowing that I was gone, I, I went up. I had a weekend home up in Woodstock, New York, and they had no idea where I was. But one guy did, and John is trying to track me down and uh they find me in in uh, woodstock and i'm you know i'm i had nine months left on my contract so it was great and uh john calls and said uh would you 
come over and audition uh, for SportsCenter. I said, John, I don't know anything about television. Doesn't matter. I said, John, I, I have nine months left on my contract. It doesn't matter. Come on over. And I went over and I had no idea what I was doing. I really, that's not false. I had no idea what I was doing, but I could write a little bit. And uh, so I do this audition and that's it. The end of it. I go home, go back to uh, Woodstock and I hear nothing. And then about three weeks or a month later, I get a call from Walsh. Well, I'm sorry we haven't spoken to you in a while, but we've had all these auditions. We'd like you to come over and and anchor Sports Center. And again, Sports Center then bears no resemblance to what and I gosh, really? Um and so had it not been Steve Bornstein going into his liquor store in Norwalk on a Friday afternoon in May of 1988, and Larry the liquor guy hadn't mentioned my name, you and I would not be talking today. <laughs> I mean, it was just a goddamnedest thing. Yeah, Larry the liquor guy in Norwalk. SportsCenter was a half-hour show then? Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I started, again, I, I was terrible because I didn't know how to do it. But I could write. I could, that was always my fallback. And um, so I, I was doing the 2.30 a.m. Eastern time show, which was, and in Bristol, Connecticut. So there was no life. Okay. So it's Christmas of 88. I'm only there a couple of months. And uh, Bornstein and Steve Anderson, who was uh, running the newsroom, take me out to lunch one day. And they said, uh, well, how's it going? I said, I, I don't like it. Why not? I said, well, I, said, I always vowed not to go 9 to 5 in anything, but certainly not 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. This ain't working. <laughs> and they said, and this is right around Thanksgiving, Christmas, they said, come February, we're going to put you on the 7 o'clock show um, where you can do what you do best, which is right. And I Ended up doing that for 14 years, you know, and then spent 12 of those years with Bob Lee. And seven of those 12, Bob, Robin Roberts, and I. So, again, uh, all along, I've just gotten stepped in shit and came out smelling like Chanel. There were not that many bearded anchors on ESPN. Was there ever a conversation about should Charlie shave the beard? As a matter of fact, there was, which I, again, it was one of those. As When I had just been hired, I was sent off to uh, a consultant of theirs who was basically giving me a, a crash course on television. And he asked me, matter of factly, what do you think about your beard? I said, I never think about it at all. I just don't shave much. So... I get hired, I'm on the air, sporadically early and late, early in my career and late at night. And one day, Anderson comes over to me and said, uh, we've just had a meeting. And uh, yeah, and we've decided you can keep your beard. And I thought, I had no idea it was up for discussion. The irony is that right around that time, I guess a year later, I meet Wolf Blitzer, and we are friends to this day. And to this day, we are both proud of the fact 
that Wolf and I were the only bearded Jews on television in the 80s and 90s. Um, and never thought even that was a big deal. But uh, yeah, they, they actually had meetings about my beard. Did ESPN see you pretty quickly as the hard news guy? I think so. I think so because my background had been news. And, and again, I had known John, and, and, and the boxing that I had done was uh, with basically network radio coverage. So that's where I got, I earned my chops in boxing. And the news stuff came from the time preceding that early in my career. So yeah, I, and Bob was the news guy. And so the two of us, you know, forged this just wonderful, um, deep friendship that we have to this day. So, yeah, I think they did. What was the vibe of SportsCenter with Bob and Robin versus the 11 o'clock show? We, Bob, Robin, and I are friends to this day. I will show you pictures of the three of us all these years later after we're done. Um, we, we were family. Um, Bob has now, uh, become intimately involved uh, with the, uh, sports broadcasting, uh, school at, at Seton Hall. I've got, you know, my school at, at Bradley, um, and Robin is Robin. And so we were all, Bob was right of center. I was left of center and Robin was the, uh, the fulcrum on the seesaw. And so we had this wonderful, wonderful friendship that we have to this day, and we are so lucky to have had it. Who was the sports center anchor you just did not mesh with on the air? I don't know that there were, I, you just go do it. You know, I, I can't, I, I can honestly say, uh, ooh, he or she's working tonight? No. And if, and if there was any kind of imbalance, you get through it in a half hour and it, you move on to the next day. So that was never an issue for me. You're going to work with whoever they put you next to. I'll find a way to make this work. Yeah, but for the most part, it was Bob, Robin, and I. So if, if Bob had a day off or Robin had a day off or somebody was filling in. So really, uh, right around February of 89, um, I was working at first with a fellow named Bill Patrick. And then after that, I think Eric Clemens for a bit. And then Bob came in when, when Keith, or I guess Dan had arrived, Bob, who was doing the 11 o'clock show, was paired with me, and then we just had a good old time. You were also the boxing guy, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, for many years on ESPN. One of my early memories of watching ESPN is you wearing a tuxedo. Yes, I hated that. <laughs> that was always the costume. We, must, we are doing a boxing match, so we must be wearing a tuxedo on the night of the fight. Pretty dopey, don't you think? Yeah. I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I think it was Bornstein's sense of humor. And I said, I look like a fucking maitre d'. What is this? That's what they, and in those days, that's how fights guys were doing it. And so Al Bernstein, with whom I worked all those years, we were decked out in, in tuxes. And then we would have for a big fight, uh, a fighter of significance also decked out in a tuxedo and, and, always the fighter's uh, bow tie was askew. It just it was part of the deal. But yeah, the, 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 those, those tuxedos were dopey. And you had a relationship of sorts with Mike Tyson yeah. during that period. What was it like? 
What was great about covering boxing then, there were several things that made it utterly unique that won't happen again. One, it was the early days of pay-per-view. And so HBO or Showtime wanted us involved in the promotion because if they're, they're going to be pay-per-view, these folks have to have cable and they're watching ESPN. So we were never told what to say, but we were given unbelievable access. Fighters by trade in those days were much more open. Uh, they had no guardrails in conversation. And all of them, all of them were open and honest to us, with us, and spent a lot of time with them at their camps, um, leading up to fights. Many nights before fights, I would spend time playing blackjack or poker with these folks, um, knowing that, you know, whatever we say that night is not going to go on the air. And if, if I was of the betting ilk, I probably could have done quite well because I had a pretty good idea who was, you know, full of confidence and who was full of shit. Um, and so it, it, I had this wonderfully unique insight to all of these guys. And, and Tyson may have been the most interesting and compelling because you just never knew what he was going to say next. When he prefaced an answer, can I tell you something? Buckle up your seatbelt. You're going on a journey. And so we had a, we had a very good relationship until uh, Indianapolis and where he felt that uh, because his perception we were friends, I should have been nicer to him in, in, in our reporting. And I said, that's not my job to be your friend. If we get along, great. My number one responsibility is to tell the story as accurately uh, as I can. Um, so it wasn't just Mike. It was all of these guys. Again, I, I was so lucky. The first fight I covered was Ali Holmes in the parking lot at Caesars. And the last fight I covered was when uh, Holyfield had a piece of his ear removed. And I said that night, Evander Holyfield and a portion of his right ear were rushed to the hospital in separate cars. That's a wonderful line. Which was true. That's a Jim Murray lead right there. That's it was true. It was... the <laughs> We had... Uh, Mike, uh, uh, Buster Douglas had Buster Douglas as our expert that night, having lost to, uh, Holyfield, having upset Tyson, he was perfect or so I thought. So now Tyson bites Holyfield's ear and spits it out. So we're on the air post fight and all he said for 15 minutes, like a broken record. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just <laughs> I said, can you offer up any more than that? I don't believe what I just saw. a little more Buster. We yeah. got 15 minutes yeah. So, I mean, so Buster and uh, Al Bernstein and I are just, you know, mouths drop. And again, so it was at a period of time, it was the last real golden age of the fight game. Holmes and Cooney, uh, Leonard Hearns, Hagler, Duran, uh, Holyfield comes in, Riddick Bowe, the, and they were all interesting people. And so there were great stories to cover. Um, and we were given access. So, you know, it, it was a trifecta covering 
it was, I covered, it was an assignment. Did I love it? I love the people. I love the atmosphere. I really liked the event quality of these mega fights. But beyond that, it was an assignment. A couple more for you, Charlie. If you had to pick one ESPN commercial you start in for your personal highlight film, is it Y2K, Follow Me to Freedom, or Charlie Gets Traded to Melrose Place? They were both favorites for different reasons. One, Follow Me to Freedom is now 23 years old. And people still know it. And that, to me, is astonishing. When we taped it that day, Wyden and Kennedy, they'd come in, and they'd shoot maybe eight or ten commercials all out of sequence uh, over the course of a week. And on this particular day where I do the payoff line, follow me to freedom, I'm preparing sports center, as I often would. About noon that day, they put Indian war paint on my face. Doesn't everybody? So <laughs> I'm typing up the show, and then about four o'clock in the afternoon, they say, "All right, it's time to uh, uh, we're going to go do the takes." And so I go into the men's room. I look at my face, and I realize, "Jesus, I've I've had Indian war paint on my face all day." And the again, I I just did the stuff they asked me to do. This is none of my creation. And so we did about a half a dozen different takes of. Follow me to freedom. I'll lead you to the underground brothers and sisters. We did about a half a dozen different takes, and they were the, the, ultimately they decided on uh, follow me to freedom. Fast forward to March, we're in spring training. Wyden and Kennedy had also done the Nike spots, and chicks dig the long ball. So I'm in, in uh, at the Braves camp, and I'm sitting with uh, Glavin and uh, and Maddox. And we're screaming at each other, which commercial is going to have longer legs? Chicks dig the long ball or follow me to freedom. It was all fun and games. And um, I'm pretty comfortable with my position to this day anyway. Um, so that was that one I like. And the other one was when, when I got traded to Melrose Place for Andrew Shue. I go out there. So I'm on the set. And the women of the show had no idea who I was. Hey, they couldn't care less. And so I'm introduced to the uh, Laura Layton, I think. Laura Layton. Thank you. Who was very nice. Um, and again, she has no idea who I am. And we, so we go through this, and I'm Bobby the pool boy, wearing the only tank top I have ever worn in my life. I had a pair of glasses on and then sunglasses on top of a hat. And I'm cleaning out the pool. And so I, there I am on the set of you know the big number one show at the time and i had no idea who they were either so it was a push and then we finished shooting it and i said to uh, laura i said if this is the end of your career i apologize <laughs> um and and then that year or the year after at one of the espies she and i um uh, presented an award to, to somebody you were a double act now oh yeah <laughs> yeah so bring me full circle here when you have that conversation with brian cashman and say mm -hmm. i'm interested i would i wanted i would talk about this what gets you to the point in your mind where you would say i'm okay with leaving espn been there 14 years i always wanted to be the dodger announcer getting to espn i thought was another step closer to being the dodger announcer um I get there in 88, and the next year they get baseball tonight, and now I'm 
hosting along with a guy named Dave Marish, the uh, first couple of years of baseball tonight. And then they get the radio uh, play-by-play. And, you know, basically my first real radio play-by-play experience was ESPN radio, the Sunday night games. I'd done a lot of the, what they call the B network games on TV. So that was another step. And now I'm there 14 years at ESPN and, and living in Bristol, it's not ideally suited for me. And then I, I'm uh, offered the Yankee job. 9-11 happens right after 9-11, the Giants offer me a job. And, and so the, the Cashman meeting and George happened to walk in, um, it was like, okay, I, I, I'm getting closer and then who would have ever expected in 2004, I get a call from the Dodgers. So this crazy master plan that I hatched when I was seven for Brooklyn, you know, eventually took place in LA and I came out in 2005. Now, having done a few hundred, several hundred Dodger games, how do you look back at those 14 years in Bristol now? I couldn't be here without those 14 years. I never wanted necessarily or certainly expected to be on television. I mean, it just was not in, in, in on my radar screen. But looking back on it, it was wonderful. I think one of the things, whatever advantages I have had in my play-by-play career is that now many of the managers, general managers, even owners, sounds crazy, grew up watching me. So I had or have, I guess, some degree of credibility. They know what they're going to get. I'm not just some some guy off, off you know, the turnip truck doing play-by-play, everybody. Um, so that experience made me better at doing this because I've had more access to those who I feel I need to talk to. One of the things that's kind of crazy though is that the younger players have no idea that i was on sports center they just don't or if they do they are profoundly indifferent but so many of the guys who are what 35 and over basically grew up watching so they have some degree of who i am but that that that's just happenstance and part of the experience charlie steiner thanks for coming on the press box thank you for inviting me it's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker Guesses the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about Aaron Judge tying up Babe Ruth with 60 home runs was I not you, babe. K-N-O-T not. <laughs> Today's headline comes from valued listener Seth Sommerfeld. It's from the Seattle Times. Have you been following the Don't Worry Darling story, David? Yeah, I don't know how deeply compared to I don't know I don't know what the limits of my knowledge should be, but I but yeah, yes, I've been I've been dimly following, staying aware of it. I think a light knowledge will do in this case. There is a saga for the uninitiated about director Olivia Wilde and the stars Florence Pugh and Harry Styles, but what's important to most of us is this movie stinks. No fresh ideas, says the Seattle Times. No great performances. Nothing original about Don't Worry Darling. What was the Seattle Times' strained pun headline? Um, no ideas. No, no performance. 
it's a Seattle Times. Um, I mean, it feels like it has to be a don't worry, darling pun, right? Mm, uh, what if we use the surname of one of the co-stars? Uh, Wild? Or, or no, she's a director. Um, Not Florence Pugh, but... Uh, Styles? Mm-hmm. Um, there we go. Styles clash styles. Uh, no style. new ideas. Just, just nothing here. There's nothing Outer here, styles, man. Styles, uh, empty. Uh, st- and empty. I mean, there's just we got. There's just no nothing for me to hang my hat on here. It's styles. Uh, styles over substance. Styles over substance. Well, that's that's unnecessarily attacking. Going after Harry Styles. <laughs> Is he the problem? <laughs> well, you know, he was just prioritized, perhaps, in the making of the mm-hmm. film. Over. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.